and all the ways in which our, our brokenness is manifested, Lord, we know only you can put us back together. Only you can make us right. Only you can heal the deep fissures in our soul. And we pray for those in Boulder, Lord. We pray for their families. God, just we pray for healing. And we pray for comfort, Lord. We pray that their, their anger or their sadness or would be met by a community that um, can, can bear the burdens of their grief and point them to you. I pray that we would be people that are empathetic, Lord, people that will open up our lives to, to, to one another. God, that, that we would pause. Lord, we invite you into this place to speak to us, Lord. I pray that you would open our ears, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see what you are saying to the church. God, I need you this morning. Lord, let not my will be done, but let your will be done. Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. The second thing is this. Revelation, the book of Revelation, is meant to invoke imagination, the strong imagery that John uses. Now, I love how this book opens and, and the way that John details Jesus' description of himself. And as we near our time in Revelation, I want to call us back to these words to imagine this Jesus. Hear these words and envision our conquering Lord and Savior. John writes this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like a burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? We've come to the last leg of messages to the seven churches. We have heard Jesus' specific words to the six other churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia. We now hear the message to the church of Laodicea. I'm going to flip the, ser the sermon around a little bit. I'm going to give you the key takeaways for this sermon before, right here at the beginning, because knowing these points will help frame this message. And I hope for you, for us, that they will be anchors as we continue forward. The first of this, these points are there is a danger in orienting your life around the pursuit of prosperity and self-sufficiency. Jesus warns in Mark, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? The gains Jesus speaks here are not only material, it's status, it's relationship, in addition to material things like money or wealth. There's a danger in reducing the margin of your life in pursuit and collection of means and affluence. I think we can all acknowledge that there's an intensity pursuing wealth and ambition that we can't lie to ourselves about. I, I tend to think that if I can just get that promotion, 
then there will be enough margin for me to then give to the needy when that promotion is going to bring about more work and require more of my time. You may think that if you reach a higher number of Instagram followers or Twitter followers, then, then your platform will be large enough to speak on meaningful issues. When there are opportunities to speak meaningfully, act of leg legitimizing love. In most of the messages to the churches, Jesus is sharp in his accusations against the church. I encourage you to see those words from Jesus as specific, as gentle, as intentional, and trustworthy. Because he wants what's best for these churches. The reason Jesus comes to these churches is because he loves them. Jesus tells the church of Laodicea, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Now, I have baggage hearing godly discipline and seeing that as a good thing. And if you spend time in church, you may have some baggage too. Somewhere in that journey, you may feel or have seen how godly discipline has been used as justification for abuse and for hurt. That abuse and hurt has led to trauma led to wounds that need spiritual healing. And what I want you to hear are two things. The first is that Jesus' discipline is not abusive. It's not punitive. It's not corporal. We read in Hebrews that the discipline or the correction that comes from God is because of the love that he has for us. It's likened to a friend approaching another friend and saying, you know what, I'm ugly and I'm stupid. And it would be unloving if they did not deal with that sharply but gently. It would be unloving if they did not do the work of pulling that lie up and killing it before it spreads. Jesus, before Peter denied him, said, I have already prayed for you because the devil had demanded to have you, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus was doing the pre-work of correcting a lie that Satan sought to sow in Peter. Then after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus goes to Peter and says, do you love me? Peter says, yes. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Jesus is not blowing Peter up for the denials. He's not removing him from his presence. He is inviting him back into relationship. Paul says that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. Jesus is not going to give up on you because Jesus loves you. Jesus cares for you. And so this discipline, this correction, legitimizes that love. The second thing is this. I do not take lightly the trauma of your past. I don't take lightly the trauma of, of my past. And I have good sense to know that it's not only truth that we need, but there's time, that there's more work that needs to be done for holistic healing. We are a community that, that is aware of our brokenness, and we are aware that we can't fix that, but Jesus can. Our job is to encourage one another, fix our eyes on him as the author and perfecter of our faith, bear one another's burdens, and to comfort one another with the same love and comfort that God has comforted us with. I want you to know someone's a place, if you need that, if you need to find that, we have that here. Now, as I said, these anchors are for our time this morning to keep us focused. The accusation against the church of Laodicea was that they chose to compromise their faith for continued access to wealth and status. Now, it's tempting to hear this as a message for the 1% only, those who we see as wealthy, have status or influence, as those who would make such a compromise. 
And when I say wealth and status, what comes to your mind? Or rather, who comes to your mind? Do they live in Carmel? Do they live in Indy? Are they Butler grads? Are they Ivy Tech grads? Do they have insurance? Do they have transportation? Are they healthy? Is wealth captured in a stock portfolio or a savings account? Is it yachts and jets? Is it unlimited travel? Chris Rock has this great line in the stand-up where he says, Shaq is rich. The guy who signs Shaq's checks are wealthy. It's easier for us to picture someone else in this seat of influence. But I'm here to tell you this morning that when we're talking about the wealth of the church, we're talking about something that's attainable. And for most of us, we have obtained. I'm using this definition of wealth as someone or a community of means. Someone or a community of means. Picture someone living in a covered dwelling, able to move around with ease, someone who's healthy, or any combination of reasonable and extravagant comforts. On the other side of the coin, we are talking about someone or a community that has influence and status. Simply, I'm defining influence as someone or a community that is relationally connected to another person within that community or within another community. Now, why? Why these definitions? It's because the church of Laodicea, their their flaw was not how much they had, but rather how much of what they had, had them. Now, it's easy to stand here and put an arbitrary threshold for Christians to be under or a level of humility to set that you are not one of the wealthy influencers. They just say, all right, everybody throw your purses and wallets up here. We're going to reject everything and we're, we're, we're going to give everything away, and then we can't be counted as those who are wealthy. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to stand here and say having wealth and status is inherently bad, because it's not. There are rich people all throughout the Bible. David, Solomon, uh, the woman, the, the woman in Proverbs 31, the people of Israel, Lydia, Jesus, Zacchaeus, post his conversion. There are rich people all throughout The Bible and this message is not to make people feel bad or guilty for having means. This is why we started with those points. My desire for us this morning is to see the church of Laodicea and other examples to see in that what happens when these earthly riches replace our faith in God and his ultimate position in our life. Let's turn to Revelation 3. He's starting in verse 14. Now, Pastor Brandon had mentioned when we began this series that I have a lot of baggage when it comes to the book of Revelation, and I do. Um, this book was used as a decipher for the internet, for, for bad apocalyptic movies, for Kirk Cameron showing up in my house in the, the, the form of mo- media and, and movies and television. Um, so for me personally, it's been really good. It's been so good. I kind of process through all of that. Um, see this book as correction, see this book as an invitation, see this book as affirmation, um, to see the joy in, in Jesus coming to these people. So the last couple of months have just been healing uh, to my soul. Um, and I share this with you. I also envision like a six-year-old James sitting here who's not yet terrified of the end times <laughs> and doing some work to say to him and, and to all of us, this Jesus, this Jesus draws near to us. Here we go, Revelation 3, starting in verse 14. 
the word of God says to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. The one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and I sat down with my father on his throne, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, let me remind you that what we have read to the church of Laodicea is specific and intentional to that church. These images of hot and cold, prosperity and garments would be familiar to those listeners. It's also one of those churches that doesn't receive a commendation from Jesus. He jumps right to their works and what he has issue with uh, within this church. Now, for some context, uh, Laodicea was a city near Colossae, near the Lycus River. The church was believed to be planted by Ephraeus, who was the same disciple of Paul who planted the church in Colossae. Odyssea was located on a major trade route that connected Ephesus, Myrna, and Sardis. The city was a center for textile production and banking. So many wealthy merchants moved into the city because of this. The city under Roman rule flourished. The city was opulent because of its wealth. It had multiple bathhouses and flowing waters, city gates, monumental gates, theaters, uh, churches and chapels. The largest stadium in the region was located in Laodicea. It was commonly compared to a capital city, given the vastness of, of their wealth. Now, throughout their history, they experienced some natural disasters. In 16 CE, they had an earthquake that caused great damage. And again, in, in uh, 60 CE, Um, They had an even greater earthquake that caused even greater damage. And what's worth mentioning here is that Nero, a Roman emperor, had often to fund the rebuilding of the city, but the people of Laodicea refused. They were proud, hardworking people and rebuilt and funded the work for themselves. Now, there came a time when the church in Laodicea faced a crossroads when the exemption of emperor worship was rescinded for Christians. At one time, you could worship God and and not worship the emperor, and and that was okay for for the Christian community. But that had changed, and when that changed, there was a potential for loss, both financial and affluence, uh, amongst uh, the Christians. So the Church of Laodicea decided to cooperate with the Roman powers by offering tribute to the emperor as Lord and God, thereby compromising their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, if you think back to when we talked about the church of Smyrna, this is the opposite of that church who was persecuted by the Romans for not compromising their faith. Jesus says to that church, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. 
and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The church of Laodicea sought to avoid that tribulation, avoid the poverty, avoid slander, being thrown into prison, tested and killed by compromising. So Jesus shows up, and let's just say he has some words for the church. We read in in verse 14, and the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. It's Jesus establishing himself. The words of amen are are referenced in Isaiah 65, where Isaiah writes that God is the God of truth, which is also interpreted as God of the amen. This Hebrew word for amen is a word that means firm and faithful. The church would have heard this intro as the words of the God of truth, firm, certain, the faithful and true witness. The strong image of witness is as one that's coming to make a case, which is unsettling. I think of this when I was younger and me and my brothers would, would get into trouble. When, when dad came home, mom would act as a firm, certain, faithful, and true witness to our shenanigans. And when she had a case against us, there was no winning for us. And we knew there was trouble ahead. Jesus is signaling that there's a sharp conversation with this introduction. He is establishing himself as truth. He's also reminding them that he is the beginning of God's creation which given their proximity to the church in Colossae, the Laodiceans would or should have remembered Paul's words about Jesus being the beginning of God's creation. Paul writes in Colossians, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created for him, were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things were created for Jesus. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities are subject to him. Compromising, compromising him for those things is a twisted view of the world. How did they forget this? How are we forgetting? Why are we choosing to submit to those things that were made for God instead of submitting to God? This is what Jesus is coming to discipline them about. The first metaphor that Jesus uses is a picture of the church being lukewarm. Jesus says, "I, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, think for a second about summer. It's almost here. Just think about summer. You're outside, hanging out with your friends. Uh, you're playing volleyball. You're playing golf. Uh, you're just lounging, and someone hands you a drink that should be cold and refreshing, but it's warm. Ice has long melted. It, it's, it's no good. Have you ever had warm lemonade? Like, it, it, it's terrible. It's, it's the worst thing. It can't compare to cold, refreshing, crisp, Lemonade, or think about the winter. I know we don't want to, but think about the winter. Think about December, and you're out, you're playing in the snow, you're you're building snowmen, and you're building igloos, and you come inside, 
change out of your wet layers, one of your family members, whoever they are, they, they hand you what should be a steaming cup of hot chocolate, only for you to put it to your lips and realize that it's warm. Like, how mad would you be in that moment? The church of Laodicea had hot springs that were about five miles away, and they had a system to pull that water, but by the time it reached the city, it was warm. They would also have systems to pull cold water into the city, but by the time it reached them, it was warm. They had built these systems but were unable to truly capitalize on the benefits of what they were pulling. So Jesus flips this example and uses it to illustrate how they have been lukewarm about their relationship with him. A lukewarm relationship is not good for anything except to be spit out. The second metaphor is this. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Here Jesus is attacking their dependence on false riches. If we look at them, if we look at the church, we would see opulence. We would see their physical coverings. But Jesus looks through that and sees that they have nothing. This is like the the one kid in the story of uh, the emperor with no clothes on. You guys remember this? There's uh, an emperor who, who's standing and a servant brings him, you know, clothes after clothes. And he says, I want something different. I want something new. I want something fresh. Um, so servant who coyly brings him a, just nothing. And he says, ah, oh, this beautiful robe. Like, we're going to put this on and you're going to look so great. He gives it to the king. So the king's naked with his fake robe on. And the servant's like, yup, nailed it. That looks great. So then what do they do? They go out into the, to the town, they put on a parade, and here's the, the king being brought before everybody, but he's naked. And everybody, for fear of retribution, just claps. He looks so great. He looks amazing. Where do we get that? And one kid says he's naked. And in shame, he, the king runs away. The emperor runs away. They can't see that they have nothing. The church can't see that they have nothing in our need. They're rich. They have location. They have the favor from the emperor. They have health. They have shelter. They're intelligence. They rebuilt their city. They're determined. Jesus calls them wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I hear this and I think of Jesus in Mark 10. A rich young man comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit life, eternal life? Which is a great question to ask Jesus. If, if anyone has the answer to the checklist of entering into eternal life, it's Jesus. So Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. The rich young man says, check, 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 check. Not only have I done all of these, I have done them from my youth. And this is where, in my mind, the rich young man drops the mic, high-fives all the disciples, starts picking out his mansion in heaven. And Jesus does something that's so amazing and comforting. The Bible says that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He loved him. Jesus loved him. It's like a Genesis 2 moment, right? Like, everything is good. A man's over here planning which charity he's going to have to get to heaven. Everything's good. Jesus loved him. Jesus says, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. 
Now remember our anchors, right? There's a danger in orienting your life around the pursuit of prosperity and self-sufficiency. Earthly riches are incomparable to eternal riches and are not worth compromising your faith in Jesus and the sharpness of Jesus' message is an act of legitimizing love. Jesus is loving this man. He's correcting him, disciplining him as a son by pointing out where he was lacking. He's telling him that there are treasures in heaven that he can have at the cost of these earthly treasures. Jesus is inviting this man into relationship with him. Now this is a Genesis 3 moment. Young man, disheartened by by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. He says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The problem here was not that the man was rich. Jesus didn't scold him for having riches. The rich young man forgot that it would cost him something, the giving up of his riches to follow Jesus. The church of Laodicea forgot that it would cost them something, losing their earthly wealth and their standing with the Roman Empire to follow Jesus. How have you forgotten the cost, whatever it is, to follow Jesus? And in the same breath, how have you diminished what Jesus is offering, eternal riches, as less than what he is asking for from you. Here's the invitation to the church of Laodicea. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you may see. Trade those earthly riches for the riches that I'm offering, Jesus says. Gold refined by fire through the blameless and sinless works of Jesus. White garments that are pure and innocent because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Salve for your eyes to fix the skewed vision of a world that causes us to see what is temporal as more gratifying than those things that are eternal. To see an enemy who has elevated himself to a place and a position reserved only for God as a false idol and an unworthy of praise and recognition. Jesus says, buy this from me so that you may be rich, so that you may be clothed, so that you may see. All of this is offered out of love and grace. Recall the words of Paul to the church of Ephesus, but God being rich in mercy, he has enough mercy for you because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that the coming ages he might show the immeasurable Riches of his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no man can boast. Let the gift that Jesus is offering be enough for you. Church of Laodicea, the gift that Jesus is offering, let that be enough for you, Soma Church. 
This is the invitation. And is motivated by a love for this church. This is why Jesus is so sharp with them. In verse 19, he says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Be earnest and repent. Jesus reproves and disciplines those whom he loves. The author of Hebrews reminds the people with these words, And have you forgotten this exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one who he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you like sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline and all in, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. To be clear, the discipline is not the Roman, the Roman people being upset at the church for picking Jesus over the emperor. That, that's persecution. The corrective discipline is, is the shattering of a false narrative that they are rich when in reality they are poor. Jesus is instructing them to see how they have compromised their faith and calling them to repentance. He tells them, be zealous and repent. Be earnest and repent. That, that word zealous there means to seek or desire eagerly. Seek Jesus. Seek the way of Jesus. See where you have fallen short and repent. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. And there's forgiveness in 1 John. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. He is the words of the amen. He is the God of truth. This is Jesus' promise to the church. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious, and I sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The invitation this morning is to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That's for the church of Laodicea. That's for those six other churches. That's for us. Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. He is willing to come in and to eat with you. He has a place for you who who conquers and overcomes with his father on his throne. The affluence that matters is with Jesus. It's not earthly, tarnished riches. The status that matters is with Jesus. Choosing to be with him, even though persecution will come, and it will come, and you will suffer loss. Being with Jesus is a far greater reward than anything offered by man or community. Remember, he has done this. Jesus has overcome the world. He has faced the temptation to compromise. He has faced injustice. He has faced persecution. He knows what he's asking you to do. He knows what he's calling you to, and he is trustworthy. 
Again, the author in, in Hebrews writes, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He is faithful. He is true. He is the words of the amen. He is the beginning of God's creation. He loves you. He seeks to legitimize your place as sons through discipline and correction. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let's pray. God, we need you. Now, 30 minutes later, God, we need you to hide these words in our hearts. I pray for my brothers and sisters here in this room, my brothers and sisters who are watching us. Lord, my brothers and sisters who will be listening to this later, Lord, I pray that you would comfort them, that they would see you as safe and good and true. God, we we thank you for speaking to us, Lord, for putting these letters out to these seven churches that are good words for us today, are reminders of who you are, what you have done, what you will do in us, Lord. You have started this work in us, and you will see it through to completion, Lord. I pray that we not grow weary in that, that we would run this race, or that you would give us the strength and the boldness to reject compromise, that you give us the strength and the boldness to stand up for our faith, that you would give us the strength and the boldness to use whatever it is that you've given us, wealth, status, riches, anything in our hands for for you, or that we'd be cheerful givers of our time, talents, our treasures. In the same breath, Lord, that we not increase the margins of our lives in these earthly pursuits, Lord, that we not seek to gain the whole wide world to lose our souls, Lord, but, but we would seek you, we seek your kingdom, Lord, and we see all of our needs met in you. I pray for these people. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen.